Chapter Four of the Confession. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Confession, by Mary Roberts Reinhardt, Chapter Four. For several days things remained in statu quo. Our lives went on evenly. The telephone was at our service without any of its past vagaries. Maggie's eyes ceased to look as if they were being pushed out from behind, and I ceased to awaken at night and listen for untoward signs. Woolly telephoned daily. He was frankly uneasy about my remaining there. "'You know something that somebody resents your knowing,' he said a day or two after the night visitor. "'It may become very uncomfortable for you.' And after a day or two, I began to feel that it was being made uncomfortable for me. I am a social being. I like people. In the city, my neighborly instincts have died of a sort of brick-wall apathy, but in the country it comes to life again. The instinct of gregariousness is as old as the first hamlets, I dare say, when prehistoric man ceased to live in trees and banded together for protection from the wild beasts that walked the earth. The village became unfriendly. It was almost a matter of a night. One day, the postmistress leaned on the shelf at her window and chatted with me. The next, she passed out my letters with hardly a glance. Mrs. Graves did not see me at early communion on Sunday morning. The hackman was busy when I called him. It was intangible, a matter of omission, not commission. The doctor's wife, who had asked me to tea, called up and regretted that she must go to the city that day. I sat down then and took stock of things. Did the village believe that Miss Emily must be saved from me? Did the village know the story I was trying to learn, and was it determined I should never find out the truth? And if this were so, was the village right, or was I? They would save Miss Emily by concealment, while I felt that concealment had failed, and that only the truth would do. Did the village know, or only suspect? Or was it not the village at all, but one or two people who were determined to drive me away? My theories were rudely disturbed shortly after that, by a visit from Martin Sprague. I fancied that Willie had sent him, but he evaded my question. "'I'd like another look at that slip of paper,' he said. "'Where do you keep it, by the way?' "'In a safe place,' I replied noncommittally. And he laughed. The truth was that I had taken out the removable inner sole of a slipper and had placed it underneath, an excellent hiding-place, but one I did not care to confide to him. When I had brought it downstairs, he read it over again carefully, and then sat back with it in his hand. "'Now tell me everything,' he said. "'I did, while he listened attentively. "'Afterward he walked back to the barn, "'and I showed him the piece of broken halter, still tied there. "'He surveyed it without comment, "'but on the way back to the house he said, "'If the village is lined up as you say it is, "'I suppose it is useless to interview the harness-maker. "'He has probably repaired that strap, "'or sold a new one to whoever... 
It would be a nice clue to follow up. I am not doing detective work, I said shortly. I am trying to help someone who is dying of anxiety and terror. He nodded. I get you, he said, but his tone was not flippant. The fact is, of course, that the early theory won't hold. There has been a crime, and the little old lady did not commit it. But suppose you find out who did it. How is that going to help her? I don't know, Martin, I said in a sort of desperation. But I have the most curious feeling that she is depending on me. The way she spoke the day I saw her, and her eyes and everything. I know you think it nonsense, I finished lamely. I think I'd better give up the place and go back to town, he said. But I saw that he watched me carefully. And when at last he got up to go, he put a hand on my shoulder. I think you are right, after all, he said. There are good many things that can't be reasoned out with any logic we have, but that are true, nevertheless. We call it intuition, but it's really subconscious intelligence. Stay, by all means, if you feel you should. In the doorway, he said, Remember this, Miss Agnes. Both a crime of violence and a confession like the one in your hand are the products of impulse. They are not, either of them, premeditated. They are not the work, then, of a calculating or cautious nature. Look for a big emotional type. It was a day or two after that that I made a visit to Miss Emily. I had stopped once before to be told with an air of finality that the invalid was asleep. On this occasion, I took with me a basket of fruit. I had half expected a refusal, but I was admitted. The Bullard girl was with Miss Emily. She had, I think, been kneeling beside the bed, and her eyes were red and swollen. But Miss Emily herself was as cool, as dainty, and starched and fragile as ever. More so, I thought. She was thinner, and although it was a warm August day, a white silk shawl was wrapped around her shoulders and fastened with an amethyst brooch. In my clasp her thin hand felt hot and dry. "'I've been waiting for you,' she said simply. She looked at Anne Bullard, and the message in her eyes was plain enough, but the girl ignored it. She stood across the bed from me, and eyed me steadily. "'My dear,' said Miss Emily in her high-bred voice, "'if you have anything to do, Miss Blakiston will sit with me for a little while. I have nothing to do, said the girl doggedly. Perhaps this is not the word. She had more the look of endurance and supreme patience. There was no sharpness about her, although there was vigilance. Miss Emily sighed, and I saw her eyes seek the Bible beside her. But she only said gently, Then sit down, dear. You can work at my knitting if you like. My hands get very tired. She asked me questions about the house and the garden. The raspberries were usually quite good, and she was rather celebrated for her lettuces. If I had more than I needed, would I mind if Mr. Staley took a few in to the doctor, who was fond of them? The mention of Dr. Lingard took me back to the night of the burglary. I wondered if to tell Miss Emily would unduly agitate her. I think I would not have told her, but I caught the girl's eye 
across the bed, raised from her knitting, and fixed on me with a peculiar intensity. Suddenly it seemed to me that Miss Emily was surrounded by a conspiracy of silence, and it roused my antagonism. There are plenty of lettuces, I said, although a few were trampled by a runaway horse the other night. It is rather a curious story. So I told her of our night visitor. I told it humorously, lightly, touching on my own horror at finding I had been standing with my hand on the burglar's shoulder. But I was sorry for my impulse immediately, for I saw Miss Emily's body grow rigid and her eyes twist together. She did not look at me. She stared fixedly at the girl. Their eyes met. It was as if Miss Emily asked a question which the girl refused to answer. It was as certain as though it had been a matter of words instead of glances. It was over in a moment. Miss Bullard went back to her knitting, but Miss Emily lay still. I think I should not have told you, I apologized. I thought it might interest you. Of course, nothing whatever was taken, and no damage done, except to the lettuces. Anne, said Miss Emily, will you bring me some fresh water? The girl rose reluctantly, but she did not go farther than the top of the staircase, just beyond the door. We heard her calling to someone below, in her clear young voice, to bring the water, and the next moment she was back in the room. But Miss Emily had had the opportunity for one sentence. "'I know now,' she said quietly, "'that you have found it.' Anne Bullard was watching me from the doorway, and it seemed to me, having got so far, I could not retreat. I must go on. "'Miss Bullard,' I said, "'I would like to have just a short conversation with Miss Emily. "'It is about a private matter.' I am sure you will not mind if I ask you. I shall not go out. Anne, said Miss Emily sharply. The girl was dogged enough by that time. Both dogged and frightened, I felt. But she stood her ground. She is not to be worried about anything, she insisted. And she is not supposed to have visitors. That's the doctor's orders. I felt outraged and indignant. But against the stone wall of the girl's presence and her distrust, I was helpless. I got up, with as much dignity as I could muster. I should have been told that downstairs. The woman's a fool, said Anne Bullard, with a sort of suppressed fierceness. She stood aside, as having said good-bye to Miss Emily. I went out, and I felt that she hardly breathed until I had got safely to the street. Looking back. I feel that Emily Benton died at the hands of her friends. For she died, indeed. Died in the act of trying to tell me what they had determined she should never tell. Died of kindness and misunderstanding. Died repressed, and she had lived repressed. Yet I think, died calmly and bravely. I had made no further attempt to see her, and Maggie and I had taken up again the quiet course of our lives. The telephone did not ring of nights. The cat came and went, spending, as I had learned, its days with Miss Emily and its nights with us. I have wondered since how many nights Miss Emily had spent in the low chair in the back hall, where the confession lay hidden 
that the cat should feel it could sleep nowhere else. The days went by, warm days and cooler ones, but rarely rainy ones. The dust from the road settled thick over flowers and shrubbery. The lettuces wilted, and those that stood up in the sun were strong and bitter. By the end of August, we were gasping in hot dryness that cracked the skin and made any but cold food impossible. Miss Emily lay through it all in her hot upper room in the village, and my attempt, through Dr. Lingard, to coax her back to the house by offering to leave it, brought only a negative. "'It would be better for her, you understand,' the doctor said over the telephone. "'But she is very determined, and she insists on remaining where she is.' And I believe this was the truth. They would surely have been glad to get rid of me, these friends of Miss Emily's. I have wondered since what they thought of me, Anne Bullard and the doctor, they have feared me as they did. I look in the mirror, and I see a middle-aged woman, with a determined nose, slightly inquisitive, and what I trust is a humorous mouth, for it has no other virtues, but they feared me. Perhaps long looking for a danger affects the mental vision. Anyhow, by the doctor's order, I was not allowed to call and see Miss Emily again. Then, one night, the heat suddenly lifted. One moment I was sitting on the veranda, lifeless and inert, and the next a cool wind, with a hint of rain, had set the shutters to banging and the curtains to flowing, like flags of truce from the windows. The air was life, energy. I felt revivified. And something of the same sort must have happened to Miss Emily. She must have sat up among her pillows, her face fanned with the electric breeze, and made her determination to see me. Anne Bullard was at work, and she was free from observation. It must have been nine o'clock when she left the house, a shaken little figure in black, not as neat as usual, but hooked and buttoned, for all that, with no one will ever know what agony of old hands. She was two hours and a half getting to the house, and the rain came at ten o'clock. By half after eleven, when the doorbell rang, she was a sudden mess of wet garments, and her teeth were chattering when I led her into the library. She could not talk. The thing she had come to say was totally beyond her. I put her to bed in her own room, and two days later she died. I had made no protest when Anne Bullard presented herself at the door the morning after Miss Emily arrived, and walking into the house, took sleepless charge of the sick room, and I made no reference save once to the reason for the tragedy. That was the night Miss Emily died. Anne Bullard had called to me, that she feared there was a change, and I went into the sick room. There was a change, and I could only shake my head. She burst out at me then. If only you had never taken this house, she said. You people with money, you think there is nothing you cannot have. You came, and now look. Anne, I said with a bitterness I could not conceal, Miss Emily is not young, and I think she is ready to go. But she has been killed by her friends. I wanted to help, but they would not allow me to. 
Toward morning there was nothing more to be done, and we sat together, listening to the stertorous breathing from the bed. Maggie, who had been up all night, had given me notice at three in the morning, and was upstairs packing her trunk. I went into my room and brought back Miss Emily's confession. "'Isn't it time,' I said, "'to tell me about this? I ought to know, I think, before she goes. If it is not true, you owe it to her, I think.' But she shook her head. I looked at the confession, and from it to Miss Emily's pinched old face. To whom it may concern, on the thirtieth day of May, 1911, I killed a woman here in this house. I hope you will not find this until I am dead.' Signed, Emily Benton. Anne was watching me. I went to the mantel and got a match, and then, standing near the bed, I lighted it and touched it to the paper. It burned slowly, a thin blue semicircle of fire that ate its way slowly across until there was but the corner I held. I dropped it into the fireplace and watched it turn into black ash. I may have fancied it. I am always fancying things about Miss Emily. But I will always think that she knew. She drew a longer, quieter breath, and her eyes, fixed and staring, closed. I think she died in the first sleep she had had in twenty-four hours. I had expected Anne Buller to show emotion, for no one could doubt her attachment to Miss Emily. But she only stood stoically by the bed for a moment, and then, turning swiftly, went to the wall opposite, and took down from the wall the walnut-framed photograph Mrs. Graves had commented on. Anne Bullard stood with the picture in her hand, looking at it, and suddenly she broke into sobs. It was stormy weeping, and I got the impression that she wept, not for Miss Emily, but for many other things, as though the piled-up grief of years had broken out at last. She took the photograph away, and I never saw it again. Miss Emily was buried from her home. I obliterated myself, and her friends, who were, I felt, her murderers, came in and took charge. They paid me the tribute of much politeness, but no cordiality, and I think they fell toward me as I fell toward them. They blamed me with the whole affair. She left her property all to Anne Bullard to the astonished rage of the congregation, which had expected the return of its dimes and quarters, no doubt, in the shape of a new altar, or perhaps an organ. "'Not a cent to keep up the mausoleum or anything,' Mrs. Graves confided to me. "'And nothing to the church. All to that telephone girl, who comes from no one knows where. It's enough to make her father turn over in his grave. It has set people talking, I can tell you.' Maggie's mental state during the days preceding the funeral was curious. She coupled the most meticulous care as to the preparations for the ceremony, and a sort of loving gentleness when she decked Miss Emily's small old frame for its last rites, with suspicion and hatred of Miss Emily living. And this suspicion she held also against Anne Bullard. Yet she did not want to leave the house. I do not know just what she expected to find. We were cleaning up, preparatory to going back to the city, and I felt that at least a part of Maggie's enthusiasm for corners was due to the hope of locating more concealed papers. 
she was rather less than polite to the Bullard girl, who was staying on at my invitation, because the village was now flagrantly unfriendly and suspicious of her. And for some strange reason, the fact that Miss Emily's cat followed Anne everywhere convinced Maggie that her suspicions were justified. "'It's like this, Miss Agnes,' she said one morning, leaning on the handle of a floor-brush. "'She had some power over the old lady, and that's how she got the property. And I'm saying nothing, but she's no Christian, that girl. To see her and that cat going out night after night, both snooping along on their tiptoes, it ain't normal.' had several visits from Martin Sprague since Miss Emily's death, and after a time I realized that he was interested in Anne. She was quite attractive in her morning clothes, and there was something about her, not in feature, but in neatness, and in the way her things had of, well, staying in place, that reminded me of Miss Emily herself. It was rather surprising, too, to see the way she fitted into her new surroundings and circumstances but I did not approve of Martin's attraction to her. She had volunteered no information about herself. She apparently had no people. She was a lady, I felt, although with the exception of her new mourning, her clothing was shabby and her linen even coarse. She held the key to the confession. I knew that. And I had no more hope of getting it from her than I had from the cat. So I prepared to go back to the city with the mystery unsolved. It seemed a pity when I had got so far with it. I'd reconstructed the situation out of such bricks as I had. The books in the cellar, Mrs. Graves' story of the river, the confession, possibly the notebook and the handkerchief. I had even some material left over in the form of the night intruder, who may or may not have been the doctor. And then, having got so far, I'd had to stop for lack of other bricks. A day or two before I went back to the city, Maggie came to me with a folded handkerchief in her hand. "'Is that yours?' she asked. I disclaimed it. It was not very fine, and looked rather yellow. "'It's got a name on it,' Maggie volunteered. "'Right, I think it is. Tain't hers. Unless she's picked it up somewhere. It just come out of the wash.' Maggie's eyes were snapping with suspicion. "'There ain't any rights round here, Miss Agnes,' she said. "'I should say she's under a false name. Rights likely hers.' In tracing the mystery of the confession, I find that three apparently disconnected discoveries paved the way to its solution. Of these, the handkerchief came first. I was inclined to think that in some manner the handkerchief I had found in the book in the cellar had got into the wash. But it was where I had placed it for safety, in the wall closet in the library. I brought it out and compared the two. They were unlike, save in the one regard. The name right was clear enough for the one Maggie had found. With it as a guide, the other name was easily seen to be the same. Moreover, both had been marked with the same hand. Yet an Anne Bullard being shown the one Maggie had found, she disclaimed it. "'Don't you think someone dropped it at the funeral?' she asked. But I thought as I turned away that she took a step toward me. When I stopped, however, and faced about, she was intent on something outside the window. And so it went, 
I got nowhere, and now, by way of complication, I felt my sympathy for Anne's loneliness turning to genuine interest. She was so stoical, so repressed, and so lonely, and she was tremendously proud. Her pride was vaguely reminiscent of Miss Emily's. She bore her ostracism almost fiercely, and yet there were times when I felt her eyes on me, singularly gentle and appealing, yet she volunteered nothing about herself. I intended to finish the history of Bolivar County before I left. I disliked not finishing a book. Besides, this one fascinated me. The small complacence and almost loud virtue of the author, his satisfaction in Bolivar County, and his small hits at the world outside, his patronage to those not of it. And always, when I began to read, I turned to the inscription in Miss Emily's hand, the hand of the confession, and I wondered if she had really believed it all. So on this day I found the name Bullard in the book. It had belonged to the Reverend Samuel Thaddeus's grandmother, and he distinctly stated that she was the last of her line. He inferred, indeed, that since the line was to end, it had chosen a fitting finish in his immediate progenitor. That night at dinner I said, Anne, are there any bullards in this neighborhood now? I have never heard of any, but I have not been here long. It is not a common name, I persisted. But she received my statement in silence. She had, as I have said, rather a gift for silence. That afternoon I was wandering about the garden, snipping faded roses with Miss Emily's garden shears, when I saw Maggie coming swiftly toward me. When she caught my eye, she beckoned to me. "'Walk quiet, Miss Agnes,' she said, "'and don't say I didn't warn you. "'She's in the library.' "'So, feeling hatefully like a spy, "'I went quietly over the lawn toward the library windows. "'They were long ones to the floor, "'and at first I made out nothing. "'Then I saw Anne. "'She was on her knees, "'following the border of the carpet "'with fingers that examined it, "'inch by inch.' She turned as if she felt our eyes on her, and saw us. I shall never forget her face. She looked stricken. I turned away. There was something in her eyes that made me think of Miss Emily, lying among her pillows and waiting for me to say the thing she was dreading to hear. I sent Maggie away with a gesture. There was something in her pursed lips that threatened danger, for I felt then as if I had always known it, and only just realized I knew it, that somewhere in that room lay the answer to all questions, lay Miss Emily's secret. And I did not wish to learn it. It was better to go on wondering, to question and doubt, and decide and decide again. I was, I think, in a state of nervous terror by that time, terror and apprehension. While Miss Emily lived, I had hoped to help, but now it seemed too hatefully like accusing when she could not defend herself. And there is another element that I am bound to acknowledge. There was an element of jealousy of Anne Bullard. Both of us had tried to help Miss Emily. She had foiled my attempt in her own endeavor, a mistaken endeavor, I felt. But there was now to be no blemish on my efforts. I would no longer pry or question or watch. It was too late. 
In a curious fashion, each of us wished, I think, to prove the quality of her tenderness for the little old lady who was gone beyond all human tenderness. So that evening, after dinner, I faced Anne in the library. "'Why not let things be as they are, Anne?' I asked. "'It can do no good. Whatever it is, and I do not know, why not let things rest?' "'Someone may find it,' she replied. "'Someone who does not care, as I—as we care.' "'Are you sure there is something?' She told me, near the last— I only don't know just where it is. And if you find it, it is a letter. I shall burn it without reading. Although, she drew a long breath, I know what it contains. If in any way it comes into my hands, I assured her, I shall let you know, and I shall not read it. She looked thoughtful rather than grateful. I hardly know, she said. I think she would want you to read it if it came to you. It explains so much, and it is a part of her plan. You know, of course, that she had a plan. It was a sort of arrangement. She hesitated. It was a sort of pact she made with God, if you know what I mean. That night, Maggie found the letter. I had gone upstairs, and Anne was, I think, already asleep. I heard what sounded like distant hammering, and I went to the door. Someone was in the library below. The light was shining out into the hall, and my discovery of that was followed almost immediately by the faint splintering of wood. Rather outraged and alarmed, I went back for my dressing gown, and as I left the room, I confronted Maggie in the hallway. She had an envelope in one hand and a hatchet in the other. I found it she said briefly. She held it out, and I took it. On the outside, in Miss Emily's writing, it said, To whom it may concern. It was sealed. I turned it over in my hand, while Maggie talked. When I saw that girl crawling around, she said, seems to me I remembered all at once, seeing Miss Emily that day I found her, running her finger along the baseboard. Says I to myself, There's something more hidden, and she don't know where it is. But I do, so I lifted the baseboard, and this was behind it. Anne heard her from her room, and she went out soon afterward. I heard her going down the stairs and called to her, but she did not answer. I closed the door on Maggie, and stood in my room, staring at the envelope. I have wondered since whether Miss Emily, had she lived, would have put the responsibility on Providence for the discovery of her pitiful story. So many of us blame the remorseless hand of destiny for what is so manifestly our own doing. It was her own anxiety, surely, that led to the discovery in each instance. Yet I am certain that old Emily Benton died, convinced that a higher hand than any on earth had directed the discovery of the confession. Miss Emily has been dead for more than a year now. To publish the letter can do her no harm. In a way, too, I feel, it may be the fulfillment of the strange pact she made. For just as discovery was the thing she most dreaded, so she felt that by paying her penalty here, she would be saved something beyond. That sort of spiritual bookkeeping 
which most of us call religion. Anne Sprague, she is married now to Martin, has, I think, some of Miss Emily's feeling about it, although she denies it. But I am sure that in consenting to the recording of Miss Emily's story, she feels that she is doing what the gentle fatalist would call following the hand of providence. I read the letter that night in the library where the light was good. It was a narrative, not a letter, strictly speaking. It began abruptly. I must set down this thing as it happened. I shall write it fully, because I must get it off my mind. I find that I am always composing it, and that my lips move when I walk along the street, or even when I am sitting in church. How terrible if I should some day speak it aloud. My great-grandmother was a Catholic. She was a Bullard. Perhaps it is from her that I have this overwhelming impulse to confession. And lately, I have been terrified. I must tell it, or I shall shriek it out some day, in the church, during the litany. From battle and murder, and from sudden death, good Lord, deliver us. There was a space here. When the writing began again, time had elapsed. The ink was different, the writing more controlled. What a terrible thing hate is. It is a poison. It penetrates the mind and the body, and changes everything. I, who once thought I could hate no one, now find that hate is my daily life, my getting up and laying down, my sleep, my waking. From hatred, envy and malice, and all uncharitableness, good Lord, deliver us. Must one suffer twice for the same thing? Is it not true that we pay but one penalty? Surely we pay either here or beyond, but not both. Oh, not both. Will this ever be found? Where shall I hide it? For I have the feeling that I must hide it not destroy it, as the Catholic buries his sin with the priest. My father once said that it is the healthful humiliation of the confessional that is its reason for existing, if humiliation be a virtue. I have copied the confession to this point, but I find I cannot go on. She was so merciless to herself, so hideously calm, so exact as to dates and hours. She had laid her life on the table and dissected it, for the Almighty. I heard the story that night gently told, and somehow I feel that that is the version by which Miss Emily will be judged. If humiliation be a virtue, I read and was about to turn the page when I heard Anne in the hall. She was not alone. I recognized Dr. Lingard's voice. Five minutes later, I was sitting opposite him, almost knee to knee, and he was telling me how Miss Emily had come to commit her crime. Anne Bullard was there, standing on the hearth rug. She kept her eyes on me, and after a time, I realized that these two simple people feared me, feared for Miss Emily's gentle memory, feared that I, good heaven, would make the thing public. First of all, Miss Blakiston, said the doctor, one must have known the family to realize the situation, its pride in its own uprightness. The virtue of the name 
what it stood for in Bolivar County. She was raised on that. A Benton could do no wrong, because a Benton would do no wrong. But there is another side also. I doubt if any girl was ever raised as Miss Emily was. She, well, she knew nothing. At fifty, she was as childlike and innocent as she was at ten. She had practically never heard of vice. The ugly things for her did not exist. And all the time, there was a deep and strong nature underneath. She should have married and had children, but there was no one here for her to marry. I—he smiled faintly. I asked for her myself, and was forbidden the house for years as a result. You have heard of the brother? Of course you have. I know you have found the books. Such an existence as the family life here was bound to have its reactions. Carlo was a reaction. Twenty-five years ago, he ran away with a girl from the village. He did not marry her. I believe he was willing at one time, but his father opposed it violently. It would have been to recognize the thing he refused to recognize. He turned suddenly to Anne. "'Don't you think this is going to be painful?' he asked. "'Why? I know it all.' "'Very well.' This girl, the one Carlo ran away with, determined to make the family pay for that refusal. She made them actually pay, year by year. Emily knew about it. She had to pinch to make the payments. The father sat in a sort of detached position in the center of Bolivar County, and let her bear the brunt of it. I shall never forget the day she learned there was a child. It will... it sickened her. She had not known about those things, and I imagine, if we could know, that that was the beginning of things. In all the time there was the necessity for secrecy. She had never known deceit, and now she was obliged to practice it constantly. She had no one to talk to. Her father, beyond making entries of the amounts paid to the woman in the case, had nothing to do with it. She bore it all, year after year, and it ate like a cancer. Remember, I never knew. I who would have done anything for her. She never told me. Carla lived hard and came back to die. The father went. She nursed them both. I came every day, and I never suspected. Only now and then, I wondered about her. She looked burned. I don't know any other word. Then, the night after Carlo had been buried, she telephoned for me. It was eleven o'clock. She met me out there in the hall, and she said, John, I've killed somebody. I thought she was out of her mind. But she opened the door, and he turned and glanced at Anne. Please, she said. It was Anne's mother. You have guessed it about Anne by now, of course. It seems that the funeral had taken the money from the payment that was due, and there had been a threat of exposure, and Emily had reached the breaking point. I believe what she said, that she had no intention of even striking her. You can't take the act itself. You have to take twenty-five years into account. Anyhow, 
She picked up a chair and knocked the woman down, and it killed her. He ran his fingers through his heavy hair. It should not have killed her, he reflected. There must have been some other weakness, heart or something. I don't know. But it was a heavy chair. I don't see how Emily... His voice trailed off. There we were, he said with a long breath. Poor Emily, and the other poor soul, neither of them fundamentally at fault, both victims. I know about the books, I put in hastily. I could not have him going over that again. You knew that too, he gazed at me. Poor Emily, he said. She tried to atone. She brought Anne here and told her the whole story. It was a bad time all round. But at last, Anne saw the light. The only one who would not see the light was Emily. And at last, she hit on this confession idea. I suspected it when she rented the house. When I accused her of it, she said, I have given it to Providence to decide. If the confession is found, I shall know I am to suffer, and I shall not lift a hand to save myself. So it went through the hours. Her fear, which I still think was the terror that communicated itself to me, the various clues which she, poor victim, had overlooked, the articles laid carelessly in the book she had been reading, and accidentally hidden with her brother's forbidden literature, the books themselves, with all the five years to destroy them, and left untouched, her own anxiety about the confession in the telephone box, which led to our finding it, her espionage of the house by means of the telephone, the doctor's night visit in search of the confession, the daily penance for five years of the dead woman's photograph in her room, all of these, and her occasional weakenings, poor soul, when she tried to change her handwriting against discovery, and refused to allow the second telephone to be installed. How clear it was! How, in a way, inevitable! And, too, how really best for her it had turned out! For she had made a pact, and she died believing that discovery here had come, and would take the place of punishment beyond. Martin Spray came the next day. I was in the library alone, and he was with Anne in the garden, when Maggie came into the room with a saucer of crab-apple jelly. "'I wish you'd look at this,' she said. "'If it's cooked too much, it gets tough, and—' She straightened suddenly, and stood staring out through a window. "'I'd thank you to look out and see the goings-on in our garden,' she said sharply. "'In broad daylight, too. I—' But I did not hear what else Maggie had to say. I glanced out, and Martin had raised the girl's face to his, and was kissing her, gently and very tenderly. And then, and again, as with fear, it is hard to put into words. I felt come over me such a wave of contentment and happiness as made me close my eyes with the sheer relief and joy of it. All was well. The past was the past and out of its mistakes had come a beautiful thing. And, like the fear, this joy was not mine. It came to me. I picked it up, a thought without words. 
Sometimes I think about it, and I wonder, did little Miss Emily know? End of chapter 4 End of the Confession Recorded by Winna Hathaway in Fayetteville, North Carolina